10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Valencia, this is The Breakfast Show with Mal Krishnasamy. Good morning! Welcome to The Breakfast Show. I'm Mal Krishnasamy. I'm here every Tuesday, 7 to 8.30am. Coming up, we've got special guests, Adrian Rollins and Dana Abdul-Karim. We're talking racism in sport. It's Tuesday morning. This is Teachers Talk Radio and we are live! Live from Valencia, this is The Breakfast Show with Mal Krishnasamy on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Morning, morning, morning. I've missed that music. <laughs> yes, Tom Rogers, I am in Valencia. I don't know why you're laughing. I'm the one that should be laughing. Yes, I've moved to Spain. I haven't been on in what seems like an absolute age. And in that time that I've been away, I got married. <laughs> I got married. Yeah, I got married and moved from Bournemouth to Valencia. Oh, thank you, Tom Hopkins Burke says it's like you've never been away. It feels like I've been away. Well, the last half an hour feels when like I've been trying to download various different things. Um, it feels like I've been away for months and months and months. Um, yeah, so a lot has happened since I've been away. But today's show is uh, quite a serious one, so I thought I'd go in. Um, uh, I'm not easing myself.
about racism in sport today. Um, now, I noticed in the news last night, I was doing a bit of research last night, and Azim Rafiq, uh, a cricketer from um, in the Yorkshire team, his testimony, um, it was, well, when I listened to it, I, I, I spent, uh, Tom Rogers is saying, can hear you. Do you mean can't hear me or, oh, you can hear me. Okay. Th thank you. <laughs> I thought you could. <laughs> thank you. You've put me off now, Tom. Right. So Azim Rafiq, um, he did an hours-long testimony, which was uh, a culmination of a 16-month period during which Yorkshire undertook an independent review into more than 40 allegations of racism and bullying made by Rafiq. Now, anyone that listened to that, I don't know, you'd have to be absolutely heartless not to feel um, how horrendous it was. And... The emotions that I felt watching his testimony were a huge mixed, mixture, really. Um, I don't know where to start because listening to him, it reminded me, it was kind of like a trigger for me uh, growing up in the 70s in the East End of London. Um, there was a lot of racism about and the P word was used a lot uh, in my direction. Um, in my family's direction, I remember, you know, yeah, there's a lot of stuff I remember, which I won't go into now. Um, but with Azim Rafiq, his testimony, he talked about um, the impact this racism and bullying had on him uh, mentally. Despite the fact that the club accepted that it had done, you know, inappropriate behaviour had gone on, no one at the club um, was disciplined as a result of the independent um, investigation. Asim noticed that this is not about individuals, but rather the structure and processes of the club, and we need to tackle this. So um, we have got. We have got Adrian Rollins coming in to talk to us about his experiences. Adrian is, um, like I said, went to the same school as me. We both grew up in the same neighbourhood. He's now a deputy head, um, but he was a pro cricketer and so was his brother. So uh, it'll be interesting to hear his point of view. So any second now he's going to call in. Um, 
let's have a look at some figures. South Asians. Now, people don't really, a lot of people don't, I don't like the uh, phrase Asian <laughs> because they say, oh, you're, you're Asian, aren't you? Or, you know, which Asia is such a massive area. Uh, it's a, a huge area of the world. It's an entire continent which spans from Russia to Turkey to India, Chinese, uh, China, uh, Japan, Korea, or where my family are from, Malaysia, Singapore. Um, you can just say in those countries, you know, people are from all different areas. It's very different areas. But if we're talking about South Asians, we're talking about like India, Pakistan, those kinds of areas. So South Asians in the UK make up about a third of recreational cricket players. Uh, and this is right across the country. Yet, if we're looking at professional players, there's only about 5% of them. Now, white British players are 16 times more likely to convert to professional status than British South Asian players. And during um, Azim's testimony, he talked about how in... Okay, um, as he talked about, I'm now getting my husband coming in with notes so that I can read it. But, yeah, that's not helpful. <laughs> okay, so um, only 10 British Asians are among the UK's 4,000 professional footballers which is just 0.25% of players compared to 7% of the population. And what I was saying was during Azim Rafiq's testimony, he talked about how in places like Birmingham, 50% of clubs um, are from South Asian background, but none of them made it to professional status. Um, I mean, that's a massive statistic isn't it it's quite a huge statistic when you think you got half the club is from a south asian background yet none of them carry on now there must be a reason for that um and we're going to talk to let's see adrian rollins has just entered the studio let me invite him in adrian <coughs> hello good morning can you hear me yeah, I can hear you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, welcome to the show. Um, Adrian was one of my first ever guests on TTR, uh, a former professional cricket player and a current deputy head. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yep, excellent. <laughs> right, <okay. laughs> right, now, we're talking about racism in sport and our ideas the first person I thought of was to ask you uh, to come onto the show because mm -hmm. I know you've been a professional cricketer. Now, when yeah. you heard Azim's testimony, did you think, well, that must be that's a one-off? Uh, no, no. Um, the thing is, there's racism in society, so it's not going to be any different in sport, really. So, uh, the thing with with cricket in itself as a sport at a professional level, it's it's still very much an elitist um, sport, so therefore, um, 
there's there's still a I would almost say like even within sport there's a class divide, but then when it comes to there's racism in society. So in sport, uh, it's it's it it very much exists, and it's not always you know with Azim with uh kind of account of various incidents. Some of them can be blatant and some of them can be subtle. Um, I I had uh, plenty of experiences. And I wouldn't necessarily identify them to a team. Oh, you're uh, going but more in and out there you are. Yeah, kind of individuals and and perhaps also just lack of understanding. And I would also say perhaps even institutionally in terms of the governing body not having that full understanding of of the impact of racism in, in cricket. Mm. And when I mean like um I'm not asking you to relive some of your experiences. But um, when you say there's a misunderstanding, because this is what I'm hearing quite a bit about, um, and I read some study by Sport England, I think it was, that said people don't realise, you know, there's confusion about what racism is. And I laughed out loud when I read that, but that's probably because (laughs) of my own experiences. But I can't imagine, for me, I just can't imagine in my head how anyone can think be confused whether something is racist or not. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I'm not quite sure what's confusing. I, I think what the problem is when you're growing up in the 70s and 80s and you look at what's on the TV then, um, you know, what was deemed to be comedy, a lot mm. of that was racist and therefore people thought it was just banter. So when you enter yeah. the, the, the change room or you enter certain environments, people think it's just banter because that's what they've been raised on and that's not making excuses for people. It's just mm-hmm. having that broader understanding that, you know, if I think about programmes like Mind Your Language uh, back in the 70s. I was 70s, just thinking or, of that, yeah. Um, just other ones off that nature, the kind of Alf Garnet ones and mm. other ones or some of the comedians who were deemed to be funny in the 70s and 80s who I, I won't name because they don't deserve to be named. But no. on the back of that where people found that funny, all it did was perpetuate a stereotype. And then on the back of that, uh, people... You know, with narrow minds and lack of it, lack of exposure, or just generally they're, how they were raised, felt that's how we we were. So, you know, I, I recall, I can mm. recall about naming and... particular names of teams that I remember mm. when I was even prior to being professional cricketer, there were barriers. Mm. And what kind of barriers? Well, I can recall when I was playing um, junior, um, junior cricket, junior representative cricket. And uh, one year, it was the, well, I'll name the year, it was under 15s. So mm-hmm. that year is what's called the Esker Festival, which is England Schools Cricket Association Festival. And you have what's called a Bunbury's Festival, which is fronted by David, I think David English, and mm-hmm. um, or funded by David English. And uh, that festival is where you have four regional teams, South, North, uh, Midlands, and West, if I recall. And in that under 15, if you, you, you can have a trial or you can be invited to a trial to play for your region. So playing for us at schools, it'd be the South. Or and or you could be picked without being uh, invited. That particular incident, I, at that particular year, I was top of the Essex schools batting averages by 20 plus runs. Mm. And I didn't even get a trial. The, oh, Essex, wow. manager, what, the Essex schools manager was the South manager. And I didn't right. even get a trial. And there were players in the team who got selected for the South without having a trial. And, you know, it, it wasn't hard to work out why that yeah. was. That's just yeah. one incident. But there were just, there was, there was, 
lots of little things along the way and also during your career which some were blatant <laughs> but um yeah some were not so yeah yeah so in terms of the impact on you as a cricketer uh, what what did what impact? I mean, because that's quite hard to take when clearly yeah. you're the best, but you're not chosen. Yeah, um, it, it impacts your confidence. I mean, I at that point, I mean, I played. I mean, Essex, my Essex schools manager under sixteen was fine, and under Essex schools under nineteen, he was fine. He actually went to um, my Essex schools under nineteen manager attended Avenue Primary School and uh, and grew up in Newham, so. I mean, he knew exactly where I was coming from. Mm. He was a good guy, but um, yeah. it impacted me in terms of I didn't think it was for me because I didn't think there was a space for me. Mm. Now, people may say, "What?" Well, but your brother played for Essex and your brother went through, but my brother was, I was, I never saw myself as exceptional, but my brother was extremely exceptional, not even just exceptional. He was put the best wicketkeeper in Essex or East mm. London Essex for his age group. You could go three years below, three years above. You know, he was part of the England setup. There was no way Essex could not sign him. I yeah. wasn't necessarily in that light. And we're talking Essex at a time when had people like Gooch, Nasser Hussain, et cetera, et cetera. A lot, of, a lot of players. And I just wasn't seen to be part of that setup. But, mm. um, yeah, it's... Um, so my, my thought was I was just going to yeah. do my A-levels and go to uni. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and this is what I'm hearing because when... Azim Rafiq, he talked about, so in the Midlands, for example, some of the um, um, counties have got like 50% are like South Asian background, yet none of them go on to um, become pros. So does that surprise you or is that, I mean, uh, Considering, I mean, you went through all this in the eighties and nineties, and considering it's like you know the twenty twenties now, that's a bit disheartening, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is disheartening, but um, things don't change unless people want them to change, or mm. people acknowledge that change needs to take place because um, you can, you can, you only change things if you see change is necessary, and. Also, you know, what's, you know, they say what happens in the dark will eventually come to the light. That's what's happened recently with Azim Rafiq. But there's a lot of Azim Rafiqs um, out there who had their experiences. He was just one of the first people to come out mm. and say it. And I know there's been some counter things that he's done this and he's done that, but that can't negate from the the actual experience that he had and that he yeah. experienced. And I think we, we shouldn't forget that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's it because last night when I was looking into you know, the details about this investigation and so on. Uh, you type in his name into Google and suddenly there's loads of stuff that's trying to discredit him as a person. Yeah. But you're like, yeah, but this stuff still happened. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can't – that doesn't take away from what's actually happened in the past. Um, what do you feel needs to change? I mean, um, when you were a kid and this was happening to you, what would have helped you? I mean, when I the, the thing that kind of gave me an identity when I was a child that even attracted me to cricket, first thing, I had uncles who played in the local leagues and they were doing well. But what attracted to me, despite the kind of racism I was experiencing outside of cricket, uh, was um, the fact that the West Indies cricket team were doing so well. That, so that gave me an identity. 
I wouldn't mm. say that would be a thing to aspire to now because I don't think they're playing that well. However, mm. uh, what needs to happen is just that the, the conversation needs to take place where people own what has happened before and what is maybe still happening and then have a conversation to take it forward. If they're not willing to have it and actually be genuine, and, and I'm not talking about putting programs in places to tick boxes because sometimes people put things in places to tick a box and say, well, mm. look, we've done that. Or, you know, whether it's, and you know whether it's you know let's put armbands on or whatever it is that's that wasn't don't that won't address the systemic issue and the systemic mm. issue is that need to acknowledge that in order to change things people have to acknowledge that change needs to take place and you know when i think about my experiences in the, in the 90s and they weren't all bad so i'm not like i'd say had some really fantastic experiences but there mm. were certain experiences which were hold up a minute that's just not acceptable and that's and that's clearly related to race that I'd think, right, well, that's not fair. And I think mm. it's at those moments where people think, what, what, what is the, yeah. the kind of the end goal here? Is the end goal to put people in their place, in inverted commas? Or is mm. the end goal to people to understand where people are coming from and then understand how to take things forward? And I, I, just, I just felt, or I just feel that in order to tackle just issues such as racism, there has to be an understanding of a meeting the mind say, this is what needs to happen in order for there to be change. And mm. if people aren't acknowledging yeah. that there's change that needs to take yeah. place, then there's gonna, then problem will always be there. Well, yeah, yeah. I suppose it's like that old adage of you have to admit you're an alcoholic before you can actually do something about being an alcoholic. You know, it, yes. it needs to be rather than sweeping it under the carpet, it needs to be um, dealt with head on. And it sounds like Azim Rafiq has forced the issue for people yeah. to deal with it head on. Yeah. He do has, you have? Yeah. And do you have higher hopes for the cricket board to do something about this? Well, what I've, what I've noticed is that a lot of counties have emailed um, or put things on Twitter um, asking for people to come forward um, mm. to you know to say look we're, we're willing to talk and if you've had any heroin experiences please contact us and we can talk about it and that seems there seems to be something coming from all the counties it seems a bit generic to me to be honest and it's probably been advised legally I would say that's a start um, however what happens after that is what's important so say, for example, I were to go to Derbyshire mm. and North Ends and say, look, these are my experiences this, and, and these are the incidents that I, that I had to deal with and this is how it impacted me and this is how things, things should happen moving forward. Um, the key thing is for them, to, for them and those counties to take it forward. And this really has to be led by the ECB. And that's where mm. I feel, uh, to be perfectly honest, in the case of Azim Rafiq, I didn't see any support from the ECB mm. or even the, yeah. the Players' Union. Um, for mm. the last, you know, they're now bringing it now, but during the the year, two years where he was challenging Yorkshire, there was zero support from any authority. Yeah. Um, do you think? I mean, why do you think it's happening now that people are coming forward? Because, like you said, that um, a lot of the uh, cricket organisations have said, look, let us know if you've had similar experiences. And I read last night that there's been thousands of people getting in touch saying they've had similar experiences, horrendous experiences. Um, but why do you think it's now, 2021, where somebody is standing up saying no? I think it's, 
I think it's uh, not the snowball effect, but I think it's it's cumulative. I think it's been years coming. I, I, I would say if you think last summer in the cricket when we had Michael Holding and Ebony Rainford Brent kind of being quite open and emotional on the back of the George Floyd mm. and the George and in the context of George yeah. Floyd, there's been a million George Floyds before George Floyd. But I think yeah. it's that the kind of the protesting and the protesting wasn't um, it was about equality. And I think that on the back of seeing someone prominent like Michael Holding on the TV, who, you know, played for, was a is a West Indies cricket legend and played in the 70s and 80s. And then we're talking 30 years, but almost 30 years post-career. And he's now letting his, you know, his emotions have come out from someone who's probably known to be probably one of the yeah. coolest guys ever in cricket. I think that had impact on people because people must have yeah. thought, well, hold on a minute. What, why are you, where's that come from? But the reality is he's kept that in and people do. Yeah. People, you know, people who experience trauma, particularly when it comes to racism or any other trauma, um, if they don't get the opportunity to let it out, it just stays with them. And racism is one of those things when your your experiences, they, they build and build and build and then to the point where when you see someone like Mark Holden come out and talk, it kind, mm. of, it kind of gives you the confidence to say, well, actually now I've got a story to tell. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I remember that, uh, watching that because he was a bit of a hero of mine as well growing up and it it really I think yeah I think you're right that was a kind of a watershed moment you know to hear to see someone like that expressing the hurt really and how yeah like you say all these years later that it can still be so painful and I, I don't it's what I found difficult the last week or so is um, the dismissing of what this is, um, the dismissing of racism, that this is just banter, you need a thicker skin. I got very upset the other day yeah. reading some comments and the amount of people said that said, oh, you just need a thicker skin. What is your problem? You're being a, um, and I, I detest this phrase because it's a far right phrase, you're being a snowflake. And um, it, it just it just made me incredibly angry. And I wonder if that's part of it as well, the gaslighting. Because in a way, it was easier in the 70s and 80s because it was in your face. <laughs> they didn't like you because you were brown, whereas now they're like, oh, I'm just having a laugh. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I agree totally. This, um, I mean, the gaslighting or the it's just banter or you've got a chip on your shoulder or get over it. That's the thing. When you've mm. had something that's accumulated over time and then you express that if anger then they'll then that almost perpetuates a stereotype there you go there's the angry black man that's you yeah. know that's what they're all like and so it's almost if you so you get to a point where almost you feel like you can't win so yeah. you you kind of keep your peace you calmly say something and if it, well, it can't be that bad you're a snowflake or if you express your anger then then there you go you know chipping your shoulder so you can't win but the reality is in order for all of us to win, there has to be, a, everyone has to have a, there has to be a quality. And if people aren't prepared to listen, and it's not, it's not a chip on your shoulder. When you experience racism, it is traumatizing. And it is mm. not something that you welcome. And it's not something that you should have to welcome because, because the color of your skin dictates how people treat you or talk to you um, in, in the professional sport or, and that's like I said, that's not everybody, but there might be people in certain positions that feel that they have that they have the right to do that, 
and that's just not fair and it's not right and it's not right anywhere and um, yeah. in the context of professional sport as I said really we've got lots of young people who are thinking perhaps I could be a professional footballer perhaps I could be a professional cricketer perhaps I could be a professional tennis player but if they even mm. take I know we're talking cricket but if we were to take the experience from the Euros early this year and I'm a young black male footballer I'm not necessarily thinking oh, I want a piece I want to have a piece of that after what happened there and if yeah. I'm looking at what's what's gone on now we're talking you know there was you guys a history the documentary fronted by Mark Butcher which was on Sky and that had various ex-England players talking about their experiences with real pain and you know what when what the whole point of that is not to tell people it's not you know don't do it in fact it's just to make people understand that this was the experience they had while they were trying to do something that they enjoyed but yeah. it, you know those 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 incidents and those experiences just tainted that that real joy of cricket. I love cricket. I love the game. Mm. Um, I have no, I had no ambition to stay in the game, and that's I, I didn't think there was a place for me in the game. However, I love the game of cricket, but that has to go. That element yeah. has to go. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us, Adrian. I know it's quite a a difficult topic, and mm. I know your brother uh, went through some. Uh, similar things as well so um yeah really appreciate you coming in and talking to us about this no problem at all yeah no problem at all yeah okay all right cheers adrian okay cheers thanks cheers all right cheers bye this is teachers talk radio and this is teachers talk radio news This is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. For the second year in a row, Christmas lunches and concerts in schools have been cancelled in Wales and Scotland. As the UK's COVID infection rates continue to rise, it's feared that schools in England and Northern Ireland will face a similar situation. Scottish councils are following local advice and advising schools to opt for virtual concerts instead. A spokesperson for Highland Council said, The Highland Council recognises the positive impact that concerts and other events have on the wider health and development of children. However, COVID-19 remains present in our schools and communities, and therefore Highland schools have been advised that large events beyond a class should not take place indoors or for a live audience. The chairman of Kent Association of Head Teachers, Alan Brooks, has highlighted a shortage of teaching assistants across the county. He said, it is becoming increasingly difficult to recruit teaching assistants and support our staff within schools. One of the things schools used to achieve was to offer flexibility in terms of holiday compared to other employers. However, a lot of other companies are offering flexible hours during the pandemic, like supermarkets, which means there is more competition. Money is an obstacle in terms of taking jobs. Local authorities and schools are not blind to that. 
it's hard to see how we can do a huge amount in terms of salary increase without more help. Becoming a teaching assistant is a worthwhile job. Working with young people, you can see what you are doing is helpful and relevant, most often helping the most vulnerable students grow, which is tremendously satisfying. This has been your daily education news briefing.
really. Okay, they can't. Um, so this is somebody who, Dana, can you hear me now? I'm just worried that you can. Yeah. Okay, I think you can hear me now, but if you call in in a few minutes, uh, I'll let you know when. Yeah. Okay, thanks for coming in. Um, so, anyway, just in case you didn't hear me, I was saying that, um, so this is a university friend of mine, and she said, oh, we can pop to the package shop and pick up some drink. And it was so casually just normally done. My heart stopped. I didn't say anything. She suddenly whipped around, looked at me and just said, sorry, Mel. I couldn't speak, but I have to say that um, what was really interesting was that she immediately said sorry. She knew it was wrong. Um, she knew it was wrong to use that word. And, and, that, and that's something that I remember from West London, that people used it as inverted commas banter in West London. And the older and more confident I got, I challenge it and explain how offensive it is, uh, but I had to really explain. And even um, even in the last few weeks, I've seen people saying, "Oh, what's your what? What is your problem with that?" You know, it, it just means it, you're uh, uh, from Pakistan, you know, and it's just shortened form of that. Oh, should I get uh, offended if you call me a Brit? And I'm like, well, are we calling all white people Brits? And I think this is the thing. People don't know how to talk about. First of all, if you're brown, it's very difficult to explain this without being angry and emotional. So it's like Adrian was saying, you, you know, it's that, that stereotype comes out. So you kind of feel like, oh, it's better to shut up and not say anything. Um, the other thing is, is people try and tell you that, well, I'm not being racist. I'm just calling you. I'm just having a laugh you're a you're my packy friend right <laughs> now um even saying it I, I don't think even a few years ago i could say the p word because it just brought up so much trauma for me and people saying that you need to have a thick skin over this well you know when my experiences go back to from four years old and people shouting in the street at me Packy go home and you've got the national front marching up your street shouting <laughs> you're the only in that section of the street you're the only brown family and they're shouting Packy's out Packy's go home um you know it's difficult to have that thick skin uh graham says brit isn't used offensively charged with violence etc historically smack my head yeah absolutely if anything, you're a Brit, it's kind of like a badge of honour. Um, whereas I'd never call myself a Paki. And the whole point of the word is a stereotype. It's like saying all white people are Brits. You know, no, 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 they're not. Um, so people don't really get it. And they say, you can say you come from Malaysia instead. Well, I'm not from Malaysia, I'm from London, and, it, and that's the point, it's used for all brown people, it's used to lump us all in the same box. How can shut up you packy be anything but offensive? Um, 
especially said practically spitting in your face it's just that pure i always think of it like um those of you who ever watch buffy and angel when the vampires have a normal face and then suddenly they turn into the vampire face where the entire face screws up with hate <laughs> i always think of it like that that's my lasting memory of growing up in east london you know that that you know young and old people whose faces would just screw up with pure hatred graham says um totally hate that you still have to explain this to people and this is the thing that gets us as well uh, i'm speaking for all brown people here i can't speak for all brown people i can't even speak for my brother who's six years older than me um you know i can speak about my lived experience um and i can explain what that impact had on me um but i can't speak for everyone and so when you have and um, question time when what's his name nazir afsal um i thought it was pretty disgraceful the way um oh what's her name on question time she turned she there was a question about racism she turned to nadir afsal i think his name is nazir afsal and he said oh go to the a brown person first and she was like okay i won't then and she just totally cut him off and, and i thought oh how rude <laughs> so saying oh sorry i thought oh, i'd come to you because you might have an insight or it's your turn next on the panel to go first um she just cut him off and he's like no hang on and she just wouldn't let him speak and i thought that was really rude so there's ways of dealing with it as well um but it's also a bit sickening when you know it's a bit like um you know people say oh we need a speech about diversity oh mal can you talk about it and i'm like no I don't want to talk about that's not my expertise my expertise is i don't have expertise in diversity and inclusion and all that kind of stuff that i'm hugely passionate about but i'm not qualified to deliver on stuff uh like that anyway i'm off i'm i'm pretty oh i hate it when people preach i'm preaching now uh we've got dana in the studio can you call in please dana where are you Okay, there you are. Uh, call in Dana. I'll see if I can uh, get this advert on. No, the advert's not coming on. I think I'm going to have to read the advert out. Not done that before. So whilst I'm reading the advert out, Dana should be calling in. And it might be that I've missed you. Uh, it might be that I've missed you because I've been I'm looking at another screen. So I'll put you I'll get you in Dana and then I'll put you on if you can mute yourself while I read the um, advert. So one of the sponsors of this show is Oxford University Press. If you need support with your phonics teaching, Oxford University Press now has three DFE validated programs to help you. Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well quickly using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, 
easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. To find out more about these programs and receive support from your OUP expert local educational consultant, visit www.oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Welcome to the show, Dana. Good morning, Mal. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I can just hear you. Now, Dana, I came across, it was Nathan, actually, who's in um, listening in as well, that told me about your profile that I'd not come across. Now, you're a PE teacher and, and the first hijab-wearing PE teacher in England, is that correct? Yeah, the first one to qualify in the UK. So I first started teaching PE in 2008, wearing my scarf. Yeah. Okay. And um, you're very happy to come along and you said your experiences are internationally. So could you tell us a little bit about your background, please? Yeah, I'm half Palestinian and half English. So I'm an Arab Brit and as well as being the first hijabi to teach PE, I'm also the first Muslim woman to have ever played sport for England with 67 caps um, in rounders. And then in addition to that, also played football, netball, hockey and athletics to representational level. So sadly, Azeem's experience and the experiences that have been ex um, explored more deeply over the last two weeks in particular, they are commonplace for me over a career of 20 years in sport. Mm. Um, racism and has been when, as common as what sort of era are we talking about? Mm. Um, so what kind of era in, are we talking about? I first broke into the England squad in 2000 when I was 13 years old. And the, um, the final nail, as it were, of racism within my international career happened in 2011. Um, mm. my coach in my absence, I was a hundred miles away at a school event, referred to me as a bomber and terrorist in what they then shared was a joke. Obviously that was not a joke. Um, no. and having experienced many aggressions and I've got, I've got an issue with the term microaggression. It's not micro to the person it's about. It is still an aggression. Um, yeah, it is still something that leaves a trace. You know, I'm talking about something that I experienced 10 years ago, but like you have experienced racism in my life. I think my earliest memory of it is also about four years old. Um, and mm -hmm. these are not micro in my lived experience. Yes, I've had different levels of racism, sadly, some leading to physical assault as well. Mm. But this incident of being called a bomber, my family felt we needed to go to the organisation, very much like Azeem did, to yeah. share what had happened, the fact that there'd been whistleblowers who themselves were, you know, they were white, but they felt uh, that this absolutely needed to be passed on to me. Mm. The organisation refused to acknowledge it, despite the police confirming it was a racist incident. We yeah. went to the board to appeal and at that time I don't think the sport was strong enough in making the right action occur because of it was again you know EDI is something that we are now talking about racism in sport is not a new phenomena it is culturally there unfortunately it is something that I think sadly every yeah. person that was listening to Azim's testimony recognized on a core level 
and had felt or experienced. Mm -hmm. So this is not something new, but unfortunately my sport in 2011 were inactive, chose the banter line, chose the joke line, said it was me being sensitive. And that then meant that I made the decision at the end of that playing season to no longer play for England, to no longer coach my own England squad. I'd been coaching the squad for seven years at that point and mm. to try and step away in order to protect myself. Um, yeah. And, and that was 10 years ago. Yeah. And what would you say to people that say, oh, you just need a thicker skin, it's just banter? I think unless it's your experience, and we're not talking about one-off um, occurrences, sometimes it's been one-off and sometimes I feel that I've been the target for it because obviously my staff makes me very visibly a Muslim, but I am... Mm. I am pale, I'm white. And so without the scarf, the, I, would have, I would have enjoyed an element of privilege, as it were, to, to not have this. And I've seen that in traveling with my brothers, for example, mm. where I, I'm always randomly selected, Mal, and my brothers had never experienced that. Um, mm. And I get, I get searched, I get properly searched every time. I get my mm. feet scanned, even if I'm wearing flip-flops. Um, mm. which you know I, I I almost have this acceptance that this is culturally where we are right now this systemic yeah. behavior of otherness and mm. as a as a woman that has been a minority in 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 her career because of the subject I teach hasn't typically had Muslim representation um, the sports that I do, I've played mainstream sport rather than segregated because I had an ambition to get to the higher level or highest level that I could. Knowing that you stand mm. out and then having behaviours and looks and comments being made sometimes unconsciously, sometimes inadvertently, sometimes um, deliberately, and then it not being acknowledged and respected as your experience I think that's the hardest mm. thing I hold my hands up in in kind of appreciating that people make mistakes we are imperfect people people will say things they mm. will get caught up in their own um, unconscious biases and repeat phrases and one of the things that comes back to me I was thinking about your experience that you shared about your friend going to the shop I had a university housemate that I lived with for four years we were doing fitness classes and at the end of it she was like oh I'm sweating like an Arab I am an Arab and oh. I just looked at her and was like do you realize what you've just said this was one of my apparent best friends and, and, and you know we had a really good and frank conversation about it but that colloquialism has been universally used as an appropriate term because it hasn't been challenged and I think some of the difficulties yeah. are some of the the excuses or the explanations for why this kind of language has been acceptable is because we've explained it away as fanaticism or support or non-serious but mm. to the but to the per person in that direction the person receiving it for me that was very serious and mm. I felt it was then really important but I also felt I could challenge my friend in order to yeah improve her her ignorance and hopefully she's not repeated it since but I think mm. that's the issue there is so much that has almost become acceptable because of I think how people from minorities and I'm not just talking about race here have dealt with those moments is to be the strong person that just gets on with it and kind of accepts and 
and acquiesces to it when actually has that not fed it for longer do we not need to instead be speaking mm. up and going hang on a minute do you realize because I've been called the p-word by association by proxy by being mm. a Muslim so it's not mm. just linked to color anymore it is now just this word for otherness and mm. I'm sure lots of people that have reflected on what Azim said over the last um over this weekend can recognize that some of this falls into natural behaviors but just because it's how we have behaved doesn't mean it's acceptable and that we should allow it mm. yeah and at the end of the day it's illegal <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> you know just if you're thinking about the equality act of 2010 it is illegal and i think many people aren't realizing this and i, I remember when i was um, training teachers in pshe when i was pshe coordinator and i made a point of saying that this is the law that we must talk about homosexuality we must talk about all these things we're not promoting anything we're educating and um if we're not tackling racism, what kind of future are these are kids going to... Um, those kids are going to become adults. And then those adults will have kids and they'll continue, you know, the cycle will continue. Nothing will change. 100% agree. And for me, mm -hmm. that's why it's one of the reasons why ultimately I'm, I'm a teacher, because I recognise my dual purpose as it were almost my usp so my first school that i applied to as an nqt it deliberately it you know they were looking for a PE teacher but deliberately i applied there because it was a completely mono-ethnic environment i live in a diverse city but this school was not diverse it was 98 percent white caucasian mm. and so actually understanding diversity was really important for that community and i could just challenge many stereotypes with just my presence mm. on the day of my interview yeah. there were there were you know there was a shop I think on the road where the school was with pro BNP National Front posters and mm. I sat there in the interview and 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 the people interviewing me were a little uncomfortable because they were wanting to make sure I was fully aware of my otherness as it were as <laughs> the fact that it would be me carrying probably some hostility and because of my experiences in sport at that time, I was very prepared for it. And it was a case of going, look, everybody that you brought to this interview has got the subject knowledge. They wouldn't be here without that. But that's what I offer you, a, a yeah. real human resource of, um, you know, my experience as an Arab British Muslim. I have an Uncle Victor and I have Uncle Fouad. I'm bilingual mm. and fast and do exercise. So I challenge many of the the stereotypical norms just in my existence and and I'm quite open to talk about yeah. it with children because it's it's not the children's fault it's the you know it's the environment that they're around that forms and nurtures their opinions and if I can challenge that with my presence and it and it did there were occasions you know I had children try and throw rocks at me whilst walking across the playground I confiscated a mobile phone following the school's policy and a child responded by calling me Miss Twin Towers. Um, I had numerous... Was that challenged by the school? <laughs> um, I was approached by it and the, the school, I think, again, 
didn't know how to deal with it properly when it should have been white paper. So I dealt with it and I decided to educate the young man and have a conversation with him. I think it will have followed a period of, of kind of internal inclusion, um, exclusion, but the school was quite uncomfortable with dealing with it because for them it was an experience that, again, they'd not had a lot of access to. And in a completely non-diverse environment, it was a member of staff that was the most diverse. So I tried to be very proactive in working with the RE department. And when children learnt about Muslims, we'd collapse a whole lesson and it would essentially be, right, ask the questions. Whatever the questions are, ask them. If you want to try on a headscarf, try on a headscarf. And Mal, it's always the boys that want to wear the headscarf for the whole lesson. <laughs> always, always the boys. But yeah. it's how you get them over that fear of it is a piece of material, but this is what it means. This is why it matters. Um, and children mm. would ask questions about what do certain phrases mean? Because, you know, we all know that certain extremists learn a few phrases in order to make sure that their agenda ends up on the front of the news. And I can matter of fact translate and go, well, actually, that, that word means this. That's all it means. It's just in a language you don't recognize. So it's being used mm. as a tool to generate fear rather than anything else. So yeah. unfortunately, the school the school often fell into the trap of tokenism, um, mm. asking me to be that person. And there was a time when it did need to be myself to, to try and support the school. But as I went into leading PSHE eventually within the school, it became more about, right, let's embed this curriculum that has diverse voices that includes minorities that tries to be inclusive in its representation and examples just in its pedagogy and then students would come to me with things that they've read or um, just general current affairs out of interest as opposed to feeling I was a you know a, a sound post and pillar but the aspects of racism mm. were prevalent within teaching when I first got the job I was made aware that the chair of governors at a, an event after the interview didn't celebrate. We've got a great new PE teacher. Their apparent words were, we've got a Muslim. Um, huh? And again, at the time, I was like, right, okay, well, I guess I expected it. I'll mm -hmm. just prove I'm a bit more than my religion. Um, and I think that's the thing for people from minorities, for that to be singled out, that single characteristic it would be like singling out somebody for their hair color at every opportunity for anything they ever do. I'm a lot more mm. than just a Muslim. I'm a, lot, I'm a lot more than half Palestinian. Mm. But that seems to get a greater profile or focus simply because of within the environment that I'm in, it makes me more visible. And yet when I go to the Middle East mm. and I'm with my family in the Middle East, because I'm so pale, that's what they focus on you're the pale girl, you're, you're obviously yeah. the creams. And I'm like, no, funnily enough, it's just genetics. Um, mm -hmm. And that becomes their focus instead. Mm. And it just appears from my experiences in sport and as a teacher, we are we're very quick to, to put a label on it. And I think we do it unconsciously. But when that label is entrenched in aggressive tones or... Um, judgmental language that can be incredibly destructive to have students turn around in in class saying to me that you can't speak English and be Muslim and it, I'm stood right there going okay well hi here I am <laughs> speaking English and I'm Muslim yeah. or having children say that you can't be Muslim and British yeah. again my passport is British 
I think it's a really important conversation that if teachers who are from diverse backgrounds feel they can have that kind of normal conversation rather than it always becoming a behavior thing or let's look at threat because if it is about education people will make mistakes people will say things the wrong way because we are imperfect people my father's first language isn't English and he told me about a story um, about when he first met my mum who was English and he was trying to have a conversation with her about somebody that he'd met from Japan and he used what what is now absolutely a racial slur in front of her but I don't mm. think he knew at the time what it meant and in his second language that it was completely unacceptable. Mm. She challenged him immediately and then tried to say, right, the next time you are telling this story, this is how you need to use your language instead. And that was 45 mm. years ago. My dad talks about the learning that he's done. Now, if he chose to still use that term, that is then racist. That is deliberate and conscious and he needs to yeah. it. But he has learned and I think that's what needs to happen culturally there are lots of adults with really bad habits about the language that they use to talk about lots of different things mm. and the Azim Rafiq yeah. experiences absolutely demonstrate that and the fact that pretty much every person from minorities listening to his testimony would have felt and recognized his experiences mm. shows yeah. how culturally we've let these colloquialisms become part of our language so it's in school where maybe we can do the educating so that we're better so that people stop saying the phrase sweating like an Arab so mm. that people stop associating takeaways and news agents with minority um, communities so that people remove the link mm. between a religion and the word terrorism and as a teacher that challenges the norms just in my existence I'm very aware of how I could play a part in giving a more balanced view from my own lived experience. Hmm. It's amazing how conscious you can be. Um, I mean, I have to say, I mean, again, I've written about this in the past um, where I, I felt rejected by East London. <laughs> um, I didn't feel Malaysian Indian. Uh, I didn't feel... I wasn't allowed to be English. Uh, if I dared say I was English in East London, people would just, um, yeah, they'd be yelling at me. You're not, uh, I remember some woman shouting at me at the bus stop when I was about 15, you're just a subject of the Queen, you know, that kind of thing. And um, when I became a teacher, a uh, part of what the impact of that on me was that I pushed away my culture. So I became more British than British Malaysian Indian, if that makes sense. So there was a whole part of my identity that I pushed down. And nobody at school ever asked me about my Malaysian Indian background, um, any of that stuff. And I do remember my history teacher, who I got on really well with, being in absolute shock when he saw me uh, do this dance at some, I don't know, school event. I did um, this Indian classical dance because I'd been learning it for years. And he just came over to me and it was like he had tears in his eyes. And he was like, oh, oh, my God, I didn't know. I didn't know. And, and I just remember looking at him thinking, you never asked. Yeah. You know, it's a whole part of my identity. And I felt like I had two lives, one at school and one at home. 
and it was very very separate and it was like never the two shall meet you know and I wonder is it still like that at school when I became uh, a teacher I made sure that I spoke to kids about all kinds of things you know and like you say just your presence makes a difference because I suppose they weren't used to somebody because I'm quite dark um quite opposite of you (laughs) I'm very dark and like um and being wearing my suit as a senior leader and stuff and walk around the corridor and I remember some kid coming up to me in a new school saying you were born here weren't you miss and I was like yeah how can you tell and he's like it's the way you walk in it <laughs> and I was like okay <laughs> but it it actually teaching actually helped me to uh the, allow the east and west of my personality of who I am join I don't know if I'm making that um yeah clear 100%. enough 100%. but um kids would ask me yeah, kids would ask me, and I thought, I can't be embarrassed about my Malaysian-Indian background. That's ridiculous. Kids want to know, and if anything, I'm a role model. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 I completely agree. I think, you know, we've all had those um, advisors in teaching that first you know, recommended, you don't smile at children and you don't reveal anything about yourself. And I think mm-hmm. that's a missed opportunity because... Yeah. We then also talk about, on the other side of that coin, connection over content, relationships. How can you possibly build a relationship with young people if you don't allow a little bit of your own reality? So for me, that includes, you know, speaking a bit of Arabic and the number of children who have then either tried to learn something in Arabic to speak to me because they want to themselves impress me with their with their care and and their intrigue or ask me to teach them a sentence or a phrase Mm -hmm. because they're interested I think it's really important if if you're aware of having you know multiple identities or different cultures and I you know I'm I'm east and west as well and and completely have had that experience where I felt like two different people one in the home one in my professional Mm -hmm. life but now I'm trying very hard to bring them both together because whether I whether I want to deny it or not, I don't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't deny it. And the only reason mm-hmm. why I've ever been smaller with my religion or my faith is because of the negative impacts of what's happened. My mm. headscarf makes me very visibly a Muslim. And after 9-11, I was 15 when that happened. My, the way I've been treated, it, it's changed unbelievably with people moving away from me with people taking it upon themselves to blame me for atrocities that I'm not part of um, being thrown off of public transport in my school uniform because of was carrying an art folder oh. that had chalk in it. So of course that meant anthrax. I was 15. Um, and, <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't get home. I was stuck in Sheffield. Yeah. I was like, dad, I need you to come and get me. Oh my uh, God. Nobody let me on the tram and uh, you know, being chased down the street, being, uh, being a runner, that runs up and down the city and I had my scarf on just after Charlie Hebdo two men pushed me into a canal so whether I want to deny it or not my religion is a huge part of my identity and similarly yeah. sport is a huge part of my identity and actually why not use that as a tool to create understanding I'm very aware of how me walking into a classroom for young people who haven't had diverse experiences 
or a balanced view of diversity from home and from where they live might see me as a as a threat and unfortunately I've experienced that as a teacher so that is a barrier that I need to overcome and just by being myself or talking about things in quite a matter-of-fact way yeah it's a piece of material yes I can choose to take it off and the girls are always always wanting to see what the hair looks like under the scarf and I've had to you know I've used that to in innovative ways before okay if you get changed really quickly you can see my hair they've got changed so so quickly so fast um and it's been it's been a really important thing for me to just be there and I think when I've then had students that I've taught for five or six years I genuinely had a boy turn around once and say hang on a minute are you a Muslim and it's like yes what what do you think this is on my head and he was like I just thought it was what you wore for work and I think that's a really strong place to be to have my diversity or my faith so visible that the children forget that's the panacea of it where it isn't a factor it isn't why I'm known it isn't the thing that they talk about it just something that I it is just something that I am and if I can be part of a system where that's what we are doing where young people just accept okay well that's you that's you and you happen to be Muslim and that's you and you happen to be not white and that's you and you happen to love somebody of the same gender and or whatever it is that makes a person themselves. If we are able to develop a culture of young people going into the leading of our society where they embrace that and just take it as it is at face value and go, okay, well, fair play to you. That's who you are. Great. Then I will be really proud to be part of that. But the whole racism in sport, the whole cultural racism that people are experiencing is because we've allowed the otherness to become the focus rather than the celebration of other people. This is needs support with your. Oxford University Press now has three. Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics.
Hello, Dana. Hello. Hello. Um, I'm not sure what happened there. I think uh, it might be my internet. I'm not sure, but I'm not sure where we left that. But um, okay, so we were talking about um, how representation matters in schools for young people, um, and what about in sport? I mean, you you tell me that you've got experience of sport internationally is it different in other countries is it similar um do other countries have systems in place that we don't hear um i think unfortunately you know we we always talk about you can't be what you can't see and in sport there is still a dominance um of non-diverse um kind of representation so for me as a child, Denise Lewis was the closest representation that I had access to as a, as a young sportswoman wanting to, to break through. Um, football was the sport that I first played and football at the time, you couldn't wear a headscarf and be a footballer. And there's been this on again, off again relationship with the headscarf. And still in some sports, the headscarf has a... Um, questionable security so I think one of the issues with getting wider representation is are the rules actually designed to allow for wider representation the netball rules used to be that you had to wear a skirt or a dress and I had to try and adapt my kit I was playing for the county I was playing for for Yorkshire I was playing for the region and had to come up with my own fix for that but still wearing the skirt, so I was wearing more layers than everybody mm. else. So I think that there needs to be um, a genuine consideration about are sports accessible? Is it truly accessible? And I know lots of sports at the moment are looking at their policies in and around specifically trans sport access because mm. it's a real area of um, misinformation, and they need to get it right. They need to be speaking to people from um allyship and the community of trans athletes to figure out what are the barriers what are the issues and how do we enable so that then sport can prevail and um access can prevail yeah in other countries they have uh perhaps more to gain from opening up the doors of participation you know you look at football in this country ultimately you've got a talent pool of about 20 million to try and find the talent. But if the culture is incorrect, so it doesn't matter how much work is done to make the top end more diverse, if coming through the bottom, you're made to feel ashamed of who you are because of you don't drink or because of um, Mm. what you believe in or the color of your skin, then that first step is not going to be done. And I know a heck of a lot of work's being done within community development and sports development to try and think about how we get more people involved. Sport England's agenda for the next 10 years Mm. is called uniting the movement. So it's all about generating participation. So I think every sport has been given the, um, the pressure to figure out the barriers that are disabling people from accessing their sport and then Mm. coming up with a really good plan. The new plans and strategies start next year. And every Mm. sports funding now is linked very tightly to what are you doing to actually activate this movement, to coordinate 
inclusive sport to allow yeah. for if if people want to play football in um segregation with only same gender officials because that would make them feel more comfortable has your sport got that and i think a lot of questions are being asked at the administrators of sport in order to facilitate it for others and i think maybe internationally this is not on the agenda because of i think there is still a a lack of admission that sport mm. has a problem it does have a problem of representation it is quite exclusive and yet the whole point of sport is it's meant to be for everyone yeah yeah it's supposed to unite isn't it i mean uh, what i found quite um upsetting last year well uh i get angry a lot <laughs> i found it quite enraging was um last year when it was the olympics and uh was that this year that was this year wasn't it oh, it feels like a lifetime ago but um yeah so with the uh, with swimming the um women that they had specified that women aren't allowed to wear those long caps now if you've got long hair and if you've got like um uh african caribbean hair there's no way your hair's going to fit into one of those normal my hair just about fits in and i've got a bob <laughs> so how somebody with a weave and so on supposed to get their hair in so you're basically excluding a whole range of people from the sport and then you've got the, um, you know, the, the sexist side of sport for women as well. It was great to see, was it the German team that came out wearing uh, long leotards for uh, gymnastics? I mean, why are little girls that are only, you know, some of them are only 13 wearing these skimpy little outfits? I mean, you know, and it's the same with, uh, what's that? game on the beach what's that called you can tell i'm really sporty me that's fine that's beach the volleyball. one right <laughs> so beach volleyball that they have this uh rule that you see the men wearing shorts and a t-shirt and women have to wear these skimpy little outfits i mean it's disgraceful uh, again that's going to knock out a whole load of women not just because of you know you might be really good at uh, volleyball and a muslim but you know i'm not a muslim there's no way i you know want to be anywhere near that kind of sport i could have been a a volleyball expert <laughs> i could have been a pro but i wouldn't even consider it because of the uniform if you like i just think attitudes really need to change both sexist and racist and all those six characteristics you know things in, in some areas moving forward but perhaps in others mm. it's probably moved backwards no i agree what kind of support do you think what what kind of support do you think we can give young people like say we've got um in schools there's uh many kids i know in the past that have um gone on to go to like qpr for ex for example and we're training there um various different sports where they're excelling at what kind of support can we give children young people going into those areas i think from a, a classroom level or school level it's about giving them agency so if we're wanting to encourage young people to to figure out their path 
enabling by not having such fixed mindsets about what a person should look like. Um, you know, the, the, the example that you just mentioned there from the Olympics, that's sport holding on to its traditions of the way it's always done things instead of acknowledging that the uniform didn't add anything to the quality of the performance, but it made them feel comfortable. And with the swimming issue, I, 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 it was an outrage, to be honest, that they didn't, they didn't address it and fast track it for approval so that athletes could compete. Um, and I think that's the important thing. If you're a school, if you've got a potentially talented young person, having that conversation and finding out, is the school environment, first of all, an enabling environment? And if you are still prescribing for PE lessons, for example, that you must wear this certain type of kit when you're doing gymnastics as a lesson then that really is not opening up that environment for a young person who may feel very exposed by having their arms and legs out and schools that are having more unisex policies for PE or allowing the child to choose what they wear in order to be active saying look this is our range of sports kit this is what we've got you pick what you want to wear for your lessons I think that's a really important opportunity to offer agency and then when you have a, a young person maybe that has been identified as talent, it would be about nurturing that care because of now their development has been passed on to, to somebody else. And, you know, go and watch them, go and watch them perform, go and watch them train if you can as the teacher. I always used to love doing that as, a, as their PE teacher. I would go to their performances or their matches and just be observant because actually the school might be in a more forward thinking space than clubs clubs are often run by volunteers or people that have been in the system for a really long time and so coaches and selectors and their view of what the ideal performer looks like has been shaped from a stereotype um my first experience of uh, a county trial was when i just started being a hijabi i just started covering up and at that time there was none of the sports equipment for muslims that's out there now so I had to fashion it myself and, and I looked really quite cumbersome and probably to an untrained eye I didn't look like a sportswoman and during my um the trial day there was a cutoff point at lunchtime and the selectors apparently met to have a discussion and a number of the selectors had already discredited me because by their words I'd been too lazy to take off my my layers and not bothered Thankfully for me, one of my PE teachers was one of the selectors. And so yeah. she explained, she went, well, actually, no, um, she's a Muslim. So this is how she can access it. And suddenly their opinion changed. But they were looking for an objectified view of what a netballer looks like. And through look, I had representation of my context in that conversation. And I think this is where schools play a part. Schools will know more and schools have probably done more to try and include rather than exclude and they need to have that communication then with the clubs so that a young person with talent doesn't go there thinking that the world is their oyster and then feeling utterly let down because the systems present all these barriers Thank you.
list. Um, it's, that's not a surprise to me. Uh, as well. Dana, are you back? I am back. I'm not I sure think you what, dropped off. Uh, yeah, I think it might be me. It might be me. It's my first show in Spain. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm in an Airbnb at the moment. So uh, I, I, I think the uh, internet is a bit suspect. Let's uh, no, I'm say. Not. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> okay. Um, Thank you so much for coming in and uh, really appreciate you and, and uh, you coming in and talking about these things. And, um, yeah, thank you very much. No, it's been a delight, Mal. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay. Cheers, Dana. Bye. Okay. If you have had to deal with any issues um, that we've talked about today, there's a number of organisations you can get in touch with. Um, if you go to, I'll put it on the show description, if you go to report-it.org.uk, there's a whole list of organisations uh, you can get um, in touch about. Childline is very useful. It's a 24-hour counselling service, 0800 1111. Um, They've got advice packs as well. So in schools, you can have a look at Childline. They've got advice packs on uh, sexual orientation, bullying. You've got the Citizens Advice Bureau as well. Uh, that's a free service. You've got Crime Stoppers because, you know, um, people don't realise this is a crime if you're openly um, discriminated against. There's Equality Advisory Support Services um there's um stop hate uk there's uk safer internet center there's all kinds of support lines there's also victim support so um it can't be um underestimated the impact this has many of us don't talk about it um many People don't talk about the impact. I don't think my brother talked about it for many, 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 many years. Um, um, uh, yeah, and it's difficult. It is a difficult one. And if you know, if you're teaching kids that are a talent and are in some kind of sports organisation, uh, it might be worth uh, just having a chat with them to see how they're getting on because it might be something that they're keeping to themselves. Head down, get on with it as my parents used to say. So um, it's been great being back and it's been fantastic talking to uh, Dana and to Adrian. I'm back next week. Um, hopefully my internet will have calmed down by then. Um, and I'll be talking to the Dynamic Deputies, again, uh, two of my early guests. So they'll be in. And today we've got a lot of, there's a lot, you know, there's, I think we've got four other shows. We've got Lucy Neuberger, we've got Libby Isaac, we've got Rich Wrigley. 
Gemma Drinkle. So this is the Tuesday crew, people. Um, yeah, it's quite it's quite an exciting day. Sorry, Nath, Wednesday's all right, but you know. It's all about the Tuesday crew. So live for the week, not just the weekend. See you next week. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.